We are now uh, three weeks into our study of the book of Philippians and examining Paul's life and testimony. We cannot help but be quite impressed with his spiritual character in the midst of troubles and his unquenchable joy in the Lord regardless of his circumstances. Uh, We have posed several questions for us to consider as we've worked through our first several verses here in chapter 1. First thing we asked you a couple of weeks ago is how do we measure the quality of our spiritual lives? One of the primary ways to get uh, an accurate measure of the quality of our spiritual life is to ask, what do I love? Because what we love reveals what's in our hearts. It reveals our value system, our worldview, our, our priorities. The things in this life that bring us joy and satisfaction and fulfillment, that reveals what's going on inside of us. It's a, it's a window into our hearts. Do we love serving the Lord Jesus? Or is it just an afterthought, some, some nice thing to do if it's convenient, or if nothing I like better comes up? Or, or do we serve with joy? Is it, is it fulfilling to us to serve God? May I remind you again, we've talked about it uh, several times and we'll keep talking about it, that when the Bible talks about joy, it's not referring to an attitude that depends on our circumstances. Well, we can have a sense of biblical joy regardless of our circumstances because joy is based on the confidence that no matter what is going on in our lives, all is well between us and the Lord. No matter what trial or what heartache or what disappointment or what rejection or what setback or, or whatever challenge we may be facing, but we, we can know that we are safe in the arms of God's grace and our eternal well-being is secured by the Lord Jesus. So regardless of what's happening in our life circumstances, we, we, we can rest safely in the arms of God's grace and, and know that we are secure by the Lord Jesus Christ and we can continue to have joy regardless of our circumstances. The Apostle Paul, of course, was the perfect picture of biblical joy. Remember, he had to escape Damascus right after he came to Christ. He had to escape Damascus because of, because of death threats against him. He was lowered down over the city wall in a basket in the middle of the night because the guys who were looking to kill him were stationed at all the city gates. He was stoned and left for dead in a town called Lystra. He was beaten and thrown in jail in Philippi. He had to leave Thessalonica after a riot erupted because of his preaching. He was ridiculed by philosophers in Athens. He was dragged before a Roman court in Corinth. He was hounded from city to city by Jews who hated his preaching about Jesus. There was a Gentile riot in Ephesus over his ministry. He was shipwrecked on his way to Rome for his trial. And and as he writes this letter to the Philippian church, he's been under house arrest for nearly two years awaiting his trial. And yet his joy continues to shine through this letter. That This is truly biblical joy, not dependent on his life circumstances, but rather it was grounded, or his confidence, what was anchored in his relationship to Jesus Christ. Then the next question that we ask is, last week, how do we pray? That's a wonderful measure of the quality of our spiritual life. Not just do we pray, but what do we pray about? 
Who are we praying for? What are we asking God for? The, the mature believer wants to bring glory to God, and he wants to see God glorified in the lives of other believers as well, so his prayer life will reflect that. And we saw last week as we looked at verses 9, 10, and 11 in chapter 1 last Sunday, uh, this, this beautiful model of prayer that the Apostle Paul laid out for us. He told the Philippians that he prayed regularly for them, and then he said, and this I pray. And then he laid out his pattern for prayer, praying for abounding love and correct priorities and a Christ-like testimony and, and fruits of righteousness for those people. And, and, and if you really want to pray for somebody, if you really want to pray for yourself, then begin asking God for those things, abounding love. Correct priorities, a Christ-like testimony, and fruits of righteousness for God's glory. Our spiritual maturity question for this week is, is, is this. What does it take to ruin your spiritual joy? The Apostle Paul's dynamic spiritual life is evident in these next verses. And, and he makes it very clear uh, that difficult circumstances or unpleasant situations, even life-threatening situations, that those things did not ruin his joy. In fact, hard times actually increased Paul's joy. Biblical joy is a gift from God for every true follower of Jesus. It comes to us initially through the indwelling Holy Spirit who is given to everyone who is truly in the family of God. That's why it's listed as the fruit in this, this list of the, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. In fact, it's second in the list. The fruit of the Spirit is love and then joy, Paul writes. That's why Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, he said, Those are these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. The Apostle John echoed those words when he wrote the letter that we call 1 John. And in chapter 1 of 1 John, he's talking about having fellowship with God the Father and with the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, you know, when he talks about having fellowship with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that requires a relationship. You can't have fellowship with the Lord unless you belong to Him. You can't have fellowship with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, unless you're related to Him by, by, by faith. And so John speaks about that he wants us to have fellowship with God the Father and with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then immediately after that in 1 John 1, he talks about, immediately after he talks about that fellowship, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that your joy will be full. Then he launches right into a brief discussion of darkness and light and fellowship and a recognition of sin and confession of sin. So as you read your way through 1 John chapter 1 sometime, we won't do it this morning, but, but if you read your way through 1 John chapter 1, you, you, you cannot miss the obvious connection between sin and joy. Sin destroys our joy. Because it breaks our fellowship with God. Joy is a result of our fellowship with God. And if sin breaks the fellowship, it also ruins our joy. And the only way to restore biblical joy is to confess that sin and turn from it. Even in the Old Testament, 
King David wrote after his adultery with Bathsheba and the confrontation over it with Nathan the prophet. King David wrote in Psalm 51 to the Lord, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. In the, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit of God ministered to believers. He helped them. He enabled them. He was with them. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, you see phrases about the Holy Spirit coming upon a people, but did not indwell them. That, that's a New Testament blessing after the death and resurrection of Jesus. But King David, even without the indwelling Holy Spirit, just without but having the, the, the presence of God around him, realizing sin had destroyed his relationship with God, Not he didn't lose his salvation, but he, he had lost his joy. He had lost his fellowship with God. And King David understood that unconfessed sin ruins our joy. And when he repented and came to the Lord, he said, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. But, but other than sinful behavior that breaks our fellowship with God and ruins our joy, there is nothing, no circumstance or situation that should ruin our joy in our relationship with the Lord. However, I, I think we often lose our joy because of the way we respond to life's situations. There are lots of events and circumstances that come to us that may not be sinful, but the way we respond to it is sinful. Even, even minor situations can cause us to respond with anger or fear or self-pity or doubt. So, so back to our question, what does it take to ruin your joy? And as we look at the example of the Apostle Paul in the next few verses here in Philippians 1, we see Paul had joy in spite of hardships, he had joy in spite of haters. He had joy in the face of death. He had joy in facing life. And he had these joy in spite of hardships as long as the gospel was moving forward. He had joy in spite of haters as long as Christ was still being preached. He had joy in the face of death as long as Christ was glorified. He had joy in facing life as long as the Lord's people benefited. And I'll give you those those uh, that little mini outline again along the way here as we work our way through. So, so, so we see where Paul's focus was. Paul was focused on serving the Lord Jesus and promoting the message of the Lord Jesus. His life and death and his view, Paul's life and death and his view, were just tools to promote the gospel of the Lord Jesus. His focus was eternity, and it appears that there was virtually nothing that could ruin his joy in Jesus. And we're going to read today, starting in verse 12, then we're going to go to verse 25. Philippians 1, starting in verse 12, and then we'll go to verse, up through verse 25. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become more confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. 
What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Back on June the 12th of 2005, a number of years ago now, 17 years ago, the founder of Apple, Steve Jobs, delivered a speech to the graduating class at Stanford University. Many people called the speech the most memorable, life-changing speech they'd ever heard. Some people even called it legendary. And over the next several weeks after he gave that speech, that graduation, that, that graduation ceremony, more than 24 million people watched that speech on YouTube. He shared many personal stories, Steve Jobs did, one which highlighted why he was probably so successful. Interesting thoughts. He said, since the age of 17, until the day of his speech, he was 50 years old when he gave the speech. So for the last 33 years, he said, from 17 up to my current age of 50 at that time, without missing a single day, he looked at himself in the mirror every morning, and he asked himself, if today were the last day of my life, would I want to do what I am about to do today? And any time the answer was no, which sometimes it was, any time the answer was no for several days in a row, then he knew he needed to change something. And he asked himself that question every morning for 33 years, and then he adjusted his life accordingly. Why did he keep reminding himself every day for 33 years, if today were the last day of my life, then what? Well, this was his answer. He said, and this is a quote, he said, Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of failure, all fear of embarrassment, all those things just fall away in the face of death, leaving behind what is truly important. Simply put, he says, live like you're dying so you can live doing what matters most. Now, I doubt that Steve Jobs read much of the Apostle Paul's teachings, but there was certainly some biblical flavor in what he said. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered, he says, to help me make the big choices in life because everything else in life all my expectations, all the things I feel proud about, all the things I'm scared of, they all just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. 
And most of you, I'm sure, probably know, six years after he gave that speech, Steve Jobs left this life at age 56. You know what is most important for the true follower of Jesus Christ? Eternity. That is, that is the most important thing in the life of a believer, is thinking about eternity. Dr. Paul Tripp, that many of you are familiar with, wonderful uh, speaker and, and excuse me, biblical counselor. Dr. Paul Tripp writes this. He says, The doctrine of eternity is an enormous help when it comes to our struggle of values because it teaches us what is truly valuable and worth living for. Eternity blesses us with the ultimate values clarification. He says, Just go to the book of Revelation and, and listen to the voices that are on the other side. Well, what is the subject of their celebration in heaven? It's not wealth, it's not power, it's not grand homes, it's not people's acclaim, it's not success, it's not achievement. No, he says that the constant focus of the celebration is the Savior and His faithful and victorious grace. We need values clarification of eternity because we so easily lose our sense of what's important. So back to our question again, what does it take to ruin your joy? Let's look at our, our passage again and take it apart in these four sections. The Apostle Paul had joy in spite of hardships as long as the gospel moved forward. Look at verse 12 again. I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become more confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul realized that serving the Lord Jesus always results in hardships. The devil hates the gospel. He knows it sealed his doom. Unbelievers are irritated by the gospel. It offends their self-righteousness. The world in general is no friend to the gospel. It strikes a blow at human pride. That's why Jesus said in John 16 to his disciples, In this world you will have tribulation. The Apostle Paul told the folks in the churches that he founded, Through much tribulation we will enter the kingdom of God. He specifically told the church in Corinth, he said, A great door of opportunity is open to me, but there are many adversaries. You see, for Paul, as long as the gospel was moving forward, his hardships had no effect on his joy. His hardships increased his joy because God used his hardships to advance the gospel. Remember as he writes this, he's been under house arrest, literally chained to a Roman guard for almost two years. They would chain shifts and they would chain him to a new guard. That other guard would leave. There would be one shackle on Paul's arm. There would be a shackle on the arm of a Roman, of a Roman soldier and about an 18 inch chain. And they were together every single place. They were 24 hours a day. When Paul slept, 
when Paul ate, when Paul bathed, when Paul did everything, had zero privacy, he is constantly chained on an 18-inch chain to a Roman guard 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And as he writes this letter, he's near the end of that. He's about to come up for trial, hasn't come up yet. And, and, and so with, with, with the, in this kind of circumstance, he says, you know, this has really worked out to, 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 to promote the gospel. He didn't say, you ever try to eat chained to a Roman guard? You ever try to take a bath and change your clothes while you're chained to a Roman guard? You, you guys you guys got to know what that's like. He didn't say that at all. He says, you know, this is, this is kind of cool. I mean, the gospel's going forward. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like for, for the Roman guard to be chained to the Apostle Paul for 24 hours? You, you don't think he's going to hear the gospel over and over and over and over and over and over again? Sure he is. And, and he said, it has become evident to the whole palace guard that my chains are in Christ. They realize I'm not a criminal. I'm here because of my preaching. And he said, all these other brethren in the Lord, they see what's going on. They see what's happening. Paul's having, what well, we read in the book of Acts and we see from church history, he had church services in that house with those Roman guards there. People would come to that house where he was under house arrest and he would preach the gospel to them. And so Paul says, you know, the gospel's moving forward. This hardship, this inconvenience, this pain in the neck, it's nothing. Praise God, the gospel's going forward. The hardship just increased his joy. Secondly, Paul had joy in spite of haters as long as Christ was being preached. Verse 15, he says, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. You know, we, we, we tend to romanticize the ministry of the apostles. Like, wow, man, it's so cool those guys preached and Peter preached on Pentecost and 3,000 people came, came to Christ and, you know, and all these wonderful things happening through the ministry of the apostles. Paul traveled all over the Roman Empire, had all these incredible adventures and God used him in these mighty ways. And, and, and we kind of tend to romanticize the ministry of the apostles and, and, and we, we hold them in high regard and we should. But you don't have to read very far into Paul's letters to realize he had, as we would call them today, many haters. People blasted him for all kinds of things. They questioned his real apostolic authority. Was he really an apostle? They griped about the way he preached. They griped about his voice. You hear him talk about it when he writes to, to, to the Corinthians. You know, they, they, apparently Paul was, was relatively short. And, uh, and, and, and people didn't like the quality of his voice and, and they griped about the way, the, the way he looked and the way he spoke and so forth and, and, uh, and that his speech was contemptible, that he wasn't a very good public speaker, or so people would say. I mean, he, just, he, had, he had all these haters pounding on him all of the time. 
And in, and in this letter, he says, some people who know him, some people who are saved, some people who know the Lord, they are preaching the gospel, he says, with selfish ambitions, wanting to advance themselves, and even wanting to make things worse for Paul while he was in prison. He said, other people, they're, they're motivated by love. They have nothing but respect for, for, for me, Paul says. But, but, but regardless, Paul says, if Christ is being preached, then I rejoice. They can call me whatever they want to call me. They can hate. They can ridicule. They can accuse. They can preach Christ with wrong motives. But, but they're preaching the gospel, and the word is going out, and I know that God will deal with the motives issue in his time and way. So he said, I just rejoice that Christ is being preached. They can hate on me all they want. So Paul had joy in spite of haters as long as Christ was still being preached. Thirdly, Paul had joy in the face of death as long as Christ was glorified. Verse 19, he said, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, <clears throat> but with all boldness as always. <clears throat> Excuse me. So now Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Verse 21, of course, that we just read, one of the best known verses in Philippians, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Paul writes it, that he expects to be delivered. He says, I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, he's figuring at this point in time, he, he's probably not going to die real soon. He figures he's going to be let out of jail and he can go on with life. So he's expecting to be delivered. But his number one goal <clears throat> is for Christ to be magnified in his body, whether he lives or whether he dies. Now, that's an interesting way of expressing that thought, that Christ would be magnified in my body. That word means to make large, to expand, to give great praise. And so Paul says, I want Christ to be magnified, to be made large, to be more clearly seen in, in, in my physical existence, in my body, whether I live or whether I die. May Jesus Christ be more clearly seen in me. May his name be expanded. May his cause be enlarged. All of those thoughts are in this word, be magnified. And then interestingly, as much as I quoted the verse I had forgotten until I was studying again this week, verse 21, there, there, there's actually no verb there in the Greek text. And if you look closely, you will see that the word is, is italicized, meaning that it was added by the translators to try to clarify the verse. And, it, and it's fine, there's no problem that, that it's there, but, but in this case, I think the verse even has more punch without the verb. For me to live, Christ. For me to die, gain. There's no is there in the original text. For me to live, Christ. For me to die, gain. Paul traveled for Christ. He preached for Christ. He suffered for Christ. He was imprisoned for Christ. He was persecuted for Christ. He would ultimately die for Christ. And as long as Christ was magnified... Paul had joy in the face of death. For me to live, Christ. For me to die, gain. 
But then Paul, fourthly and finally, also had joy in facing life as long as the Lord's people benefited. Verse 22 to 26, he says, For if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again, which he expected to be there. You know, Paul, Paul had no qualms about dying. He was, he was quite content to do so whenever God was finished with him. He was actually quite excited about the prospect of going home to be with the Lord. He says, it's far better to go to be with Jesus than to keep hanging out in this rotten old world. <clears throat> but he said, for me to live a little longer, it's actually better for you. And he said, I know that I will have fruit from my labor if I live longer. But he said, you know, he says, it's just kind of a toss-up. Should I go home and be with, with my Savior, or should I keep laboring here on this earth? I think I'm probably going to live, and so I suppose God wants to give me to keep strengthening you and, and, and lifting you up to, to give, as he talked about, your progress and your joy in the faith. So Paul says, I, I have joy in facing life as long as God's people are benefiting. He had joy in spite of hardships. He had joy in spite of haters dumping on him all the time. He had joy in the face of death. He had joy in facing life. How little does it often take to ruin our joy? About 45 years ago, I was working my way through Bible college, and God had provided for me a full-time second shift job at a, at a large 700-bed uh, teaching hospital in the town where I was attending college. <clears throat> I was working in the respiratory therapy department. I'd been trained on the job to do a number of different things. Uh, I don't think they could do that today with all of the different regulations and so so forth. But back in the mid-1970s, it was, it, it was permitted. And I had been trained to do all sorts of different things along the way in this, this department as a respiratory therapy technician. Well, I just come back into the department uh, from, from making some rounds of checking oxygen, and over the hospital intercom came this, this very loud code 99, code 99, room 428. That was the emergency code. Some hospitals use the term code blue, uh, but at this hospital they use the term code 99. That was the emergency code. Well, I was the only person in the department at that time. Everybody else was out doing other things. And so I grabbed this big tackle box that they had, filled with all sorts of emergency supplies, and I started running for room 428. Our department was on the fourth floor, and so I just had to go down a hallway and around the corner and about halfway down, and I would be there. And, uh, and, and so, and I, I knew that one of the registered therapists, uh, would be, would be, uh, would be also headed for that room, and I would be there with the tackle box and, uh, to hand it to them to do whatever they needed to do, and I would assist them. However, I got to the room at the same time as the registered therapist and, and, uh, and I handed him the tackle box. We were headed into the room and I was a little puzzled that there were two, two nurses, two registered nurses, two RNs that were there, but they were just kind of standing there. 
uh, and we kind of rushed into the room, and there was an older gentleman lying on the bed, kind of gasping for air, the color kind of draining from his face, and his wife was lying over him, kind of hugging him, smoothing his hair and patting his chest. And she looked at us, and she held up her hand, shook her head, no. She said, stay back, no. She said, we've talked about this. Pats her husband on the chest. He knows Jesus Christ is his Savior. He's suffered for years. Let him go home to be with Jesus. Well, the registered therapist, an unbeliever, stood there like somebody had thrown cold water in her face. <laughs> she didn't know what to do with that. I knew exactly what to do. I stepped back against the wall. I'm on my way out of the room. And that, that dear saint of the Lord, I have no idea what her name was to this day, that dear saint of the Lord held her husband as he died, smoothing his hair and patting his chest, telling him, it's okay, honey. Just another minute or two, and you'll be with Jesus. And through his gasps for air, he looked up at her, and he nodded his head. I kind of backed out of the room. About a half an hour later, I was walking down that same hallway, and I saw the wife, now widowed, on the phone at the nurse's station. Remember, this was the 1970s. The old black desk phone sitting at the nurse's station. That's about all there was. She's on the phone at the nurse's station. And as I walked by, I slowed down. Of course, I was being nosy. I wanted to know who she's talking to. I slowed down uh, to, uh, as I was, was walking past. And she is on the phone preaching the gospel to her husband's doctor. You know, doctor, that we know Jesus Christ is our Savior. We've been serving the Lord for years. I know where my husband is today. I thank you for all the care you've given toward him. You know, we've told you, you need to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Because one day you're going to be in this. You're preaching the gospel to him on the telephone. Standing at the nurse's station. As a 21-year-old college student, I was deeply moved. And every single time, I read these verses. That scene comes to mind. According to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live, Christ, and to die, gain. Let's pray. Our Father, strengthen us and give us a focus on eternity and a value system based on eternity. Forgive us for allowing our joy to be so easily ruined. May we remember that we have no promise of tomorrow. Every day is a gift. Every year is a gift. May we use our gifts for your glory. And Lord, we pray that those we know and love will also find peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.